Okay, welcome. Well, this is WNZN Radio coming to you, Lorraine, Ohio. Glad you tuned in for another show. And um, very special guest, as promised last week, David. Yes. But again, this is 89.1 FM right. Power Radio. If you're having any static, or you're not able to get good reception on your radio, you might want to just live stream, go to your computer, and put www.wnzn.org. That's wnzn.org. And uh, power radio, as we like to say, from Lorraine, yeah. Ohio. <laughs> so, um, hey, spring's in the air. Yes, Baseball's coming, David. Right. And uh, maybe we're coming out of COVID. And God willing, we're coming out of this whole Ukraine situation. Oh, yeah. Down I, the road. I, I pray yeah. that's the case, Sean. Pray that's the case. Yeah. So, as promised, we have a very good friend, associate of ours, Robert Fredericks, is in the studio, and my son, Sean Murtha, and we're very happy because to hear Bob's story, his life story, his testimony, what he's been, what he's done in the past half century is like amazing. I've heard his testimony before, but what he's doing now and how he came to know Jesus Christ, I think is a story everybody should hear. And so, uh, welcome, Bob. Very happy to have you with Thank us. You. Glad to be and, here. And uh, we're just going to kind of open up, and maybe maybe you can just tell us about your family story, your family history, Bob, because I know it's pretty significant because both your grandfather and father my grandfather went to the uh, United States Naval Academy and so did my father and uh, I did too I was in the class of 1965 but as I was growing up my dad was in submarines and we moved around an awful lot uh, I, I can first time I can remember anywhere that I lived was in Key West Florida that's where he was stationed and from there we went to uh, he went to Korea we went back to New York and then from New York to Virginia, and from Virginia back to uh, New York, then to Japan, back to New York. So, uh, and that's where uh, my dad retired, and that's, I, I, I was in three high schools. So my last high school was in Long Island. Oh, now okay. your grandfather was an uh, officer too? He was, a, he was an officer, and he graduated in the class of uh, 1903. So three wow. graduate from Annapolis. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Did you ever go on a submarine? I went on. A, I used to go on the submarine on uh, Saturday mornings to get a haircut with <laughs> my dad, and uh, yeah, that was in California too. At any rate, uh, I fell through into the engine room one day, and I was out cold for about three days. You fell. I fell wow. right on my head. I got a monster scar in the back of my head. It's oh probably my God. Stuck show now. Yeah. So th then that was your attraction. To also follow in their footsteps and go to Annapolis and become a, a Navy officer. It, it, yeah, well, I, I went in the Marine Corps, and the reason I did was because I remember on my uh, my, my um, second class cruise, I was on a destroyer, and I was never more seasick in my life. We got on the the boat in the, yeah. the Mediterranean, and uh, it just we had a storm for about three days, and I just I said I'm not going. I want to go in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to go on wow. the ships. Yeah. So you graduated from Annapolis, and then you decided to go into the Marines? No. You get, uh, during your senior year, okay. you have a time where you can uh, make a selection. Oh. All right. And so I selected a Marine Corps. So when I graduated, I was a Marine. So that was right as the Vietnam War was starting to pick up. Right. I, I graduated in 1965. It was uh, starting to heat up a little bit. Okay. Was it, what, to describe Annapolis, I mean, was it really hard? And how about... The scrupulous honor code there and the system, and how does it explain it? Well, um, 
It was very regimented. Mm -hmm. Everything was done by the number, by the bells, everything. Uh, and you, everybody had to take the same courses. If you were, if you want additional courses, you can do that. Uh, everybody had to play three sports, one every uh, uh, fall, winter, and spring. Uh, and everything was, everything was competition. We had marching. We used to march every spring, every fall, every Wednesday. And there was competition. Everything we did was competitive. Wow. And uh, not unlike today, probably, even your grades when you had a test were all posted. Everybody's grade was posted on Really? Yeah. Gee. And the honor system. I mean, if you saw, if you didn't cheat, but you saw somebody cheating or doing something wrong, if you didn't report, you were as culpable as they were. Yeah, you, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So when did you get orders to go to Vietnam? Uh, as soon as I got out, of, when I graduated, I got married. And then from there, I went to Quantico. And that was... Uh, several months of training and then when that was done i got my orders to vietnam so that's that 1965 or six uh when i got went to vietnam 1966 1966 yeah. and that was a is that a 12-month or a 14-month tour 13 for uh, marines 13 okay. months so by that time you're an officer and how many men are you in charge of at that point well you're in charge of a, a platoon which is uh, if it's up to strength, it's uh, pretty much almost 40 men sometimes. Under your care, under your yeah. authority. And, you, and you're a platoon leader. You you're know? a platoon leader. Yeah. You know, I was talking about, you know, in the New Testament, every time you see a centurion, which is an officer, yeah. it, it has a, a, a positive connotation. Remember when the centurion comes to Jesus and said, come heal my servant, but I'm not worthy you come under my roof. I'm a man under command, under authority, at the foot of the cross. When the centurion doesn't say just a Roman soldier, but the officer, which is maybe over a hundred men, yeah. said, "Truly, this was the Son of God." Yep. And then Cornelius, Peter goes to witness to him. His whole family accepts Christ. One of them saves Paul from basically getting stoned to death. So I find it interesting. Uh, the officers, yeah. uh, for whatever reason, in those scripture passages, uh, were honored. You know, maybe why is that? I mean, as an officer. You're responsible for men, you're facing death, but what qualities do you see there, Bob, that's kind of unique only in the military, and specifically as an officer? I think, especially in periods of war, one of the things is you're, you're, you're faced with life and death. Mm -hmm. um, life becomes far more basic. Everybody looks the same, everybody has the same size pack, and you're all in it together. Mm -hmm. and, and I think... Uh, uh, when when you think about the the, the 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 soldier who was at the cross, who was examining what was going on, and finally he said, "Certainly, this was the Son of God." Right. Yeah. It, 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 I think it. You you live a more simpler life, um, and you're counting on your buddies, and you're counting on the, um, each other, and I think that promotes a more basic, simple lifestyle than. What we normally it's almost tribal i mean because you're you're getting along with people from all different ethnic backgrounds all different stations in life all kind of thrown together yeah. for this experience that's totally out of the normal everyday life and you know like you say life death people are getting wounded uh, can you share that one experience you had when you were going down uh, i was uh, a platoon leader at the time and we were on patrol outside da nang uh, and um, one of the problems we always had, because we were always worried about um, 
bombs mm-hmm. was the fact that uh, they keep every keep separated, keep you know maintain distance mm-hmm. between people, uh, Marines. Uh, and if you didn't, then if somebody stepped on something, then everybody would probably resu- get the results of that. Mm-hmm. At any rate, we were on patrol and we were heading in one direction. I can remember we were headed south and then we were going to change directions and we we're going to go east. And when we did, we got bunched up and I was always yelling at the troops, uh, you know, spread out. Well, a, a tr- someone tripped a what I consider probably a bouncing Betty, which hmm. is a tomato can, and it comes out of the ground about three feet, and then it explodes, so it's almost a, an airburst. Well, um, four people got killed. Uh, the guy in front of me was killed, and the guy behind me was killed, and I don't know why I wasn't. So that was the sequence? You had the man in front of you, you, and, and well, both Well, we were in a bunch, sort of a, you know. What, what, what was the distance? You were in the middle. What was the distance between the guy in front and the I don't think it was more than two or three feet. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And so so they're both dead. I mean, they get killed. Uh, and I, I, I've had to live with that, and it was just, I, I try to compartmentalize that. And I, The first time I ever even talked about this was with you, John. That's then. what I thought. Yeah. Now, were you wounded in that action? Yeah, I got wounded in that, too. Did they take you out? Did you go to a field hospital? Did they get you out of there? I was out for a while, yeah. They sent me to Japan. So if, if this bouncing Betty shot up from the ground about three feet and exploded, how did it get, how did it get the, the shrapnel went into the air and hit the guy in front of you and back and killed him and you were fine in the middle? Is, is just, that, it just happens that way sometimes. Yeah, okay. Wow. Amazing, Bob. Well, so that's God, too, I've, right? I've, There's yeah, a looking guy, back now. I, I mean, saw a guy yeah. hit a booby trap of 105 round. Went uh-huh. straight up in the air, <clears throat> came straight back down again, and all he did was he, he bruised his butt. Gosh. He went up in the air. Yeah. He came down. And it was a, and it was a, a booby-trapped 105 round. Wow. Now, through all that and the two tours of duty and seeing all this, what was the <clears throat> spiritual climate there? What was the, I know it's hard to say, but what was the, did men... Turn to God? Did they are they fatalistic, or did you have everything all over the board? I think we had everything all over the board. Is that right? And there was a lot of fatalistic thinking. If I'm going to get hit, I'm going to get hit. The problem with the war was the fact that uh, nobody had victory in mind that we were this war was going to end someday. So it became a a war of survival. Huh. All right. When you and when you first get into Vietnam, you think I'm not going to make it out of here. Right. And then after, you know, you're there for a while, and as, as, as it goes on, then you begin to think, well, I might make it out of here. And, and why was the feeling that this was not going to end, the war wasn't going to end? Because the, Was there not a, a, I guess, a belief in the leadership? It was the leadership, again. There was yeah. no closure. I mean, yeah. if you take Hanoi, there was no sense of, okay. we got the victory now. No. No. There never was that. Yeah. You know, that was a big problem. And now, the rules of engagement were atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. What do you mean? Well, the things that you could and couldn't do. All right, you you couldn't walk to a cemetery uh, uh, because it was a sacred ground. Right. Well, sometimes oh. you might think that that would be the only place that there wouldn't be any booby traps. You know, you're not supposed to walk through that. And then, uh, on one occasion, we had, we got some incoming, um, just fire, and. Uh, I, we had some artillery 
that we used, but we used, I used uh, white phosphorus, some Willie Peter rounds, and we ended up burning down the village, and then I was reprimanded because that was a pacified village, and it's like, you call it a pacified village, we're taking income yeah, know, right. from this thing. Somebody shooting out at you. Yeah. Well, how were the chaplains? Were there any, looking back, so what was your spiritual condition there, Bob? Well, I'd become a Christian when I was 16 years old. How did that happen? Uh, well, I was a pretty good kid. But my best friend did a double flip on a trampoline, broke his neck. And I saw him the following day or maybe the day after. And, I, and at that particular time, he, he had about 72 hours to live if he was going to survive this. And I said to myself, if that was me, and I was, and I died. Where was I going? And, okay. I, and I couldn't answer that mm -hmm. question. And my mother had become a Christian uh, uh, a few months earlier, and uh, we saw a big difference in mom. And so when this happened, I went to see my. I talked to my mom about this. That was it. And I, I went to a, 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 a week of meetings at a Methodist church, and a fellow was there that, that preached the gospel. Yeah. And I received Christ. Sixteen years old. Yeah. And along the way, I always had mentors. Even when right after that in high school, I had a couple of mentors. And then when I got to the Naval Academy, I had a couple of mentors. I mean, God always provided. Yeah. All right. And even even in Vietnam, there were there were guys that were Christians. Uh, there weren't a lot, but we did have some pretty good uh, chaplains. Chaplains. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so they would share the gospel. Yes, they yeah. would. Yeah. Because they were dealing. One with was from North Carolina, who I had met. And uh, mm -hmm. he was one of these kind of guys that he would go anywhere. He'd walk wherever the troops were, he'd go out with them. Is that right? And that always provided credibility. So there were believers. Did, was it, I, did they have like services there? When you, what would happen when you were in the field? Would you come back to a base camp? No. Um, no. Well, you would come back yeah. to a base camp. You'd okay. be out for a few days and then back in. Okay. Uh, and then it got to be where you'd be out for a month and then back in for two or three weeks. Did you volunteer to go back for a second tour? I did, but it was a big mistake. Yeah. You were a captain? The the, it was at the end of the war. I ended up working for the State Department initially, which was a terrible. Mm. Mm. Counting pacified villages each month. How many pacified villages? And you know, make sure we had one more village than we did the month before. Oh, one of those fields, yeah. Mm -hmm. So then you get out. Did you ever think about making a career at the Marines? I, I did, but one of the problems was was uh, I was always overseas. Uh huh. Um, I, I I was married at the time, so in seven years of, of of duty, I was probably home three and a half years. Wow. All right, and I I missed the first two births of my children. And uh, the first one, uh, my wife went went home each time. First time she went and had the baby, uh, they, she told everybody in the hospital that I was overseas. And then the next time she came into the same hospital, they wanted to know whether she was really married. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Just joking. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't think about a career, then you want to get out. Well, I thought maybe it's best. I had four kids by the time I wanted to. Okay. So you were in charge of this platoon of 40 guys. Uh, yeah. Were there any other Christians in the group? Were you. Uh, investing in them, I mean, we, with yeah, all had, of the was negativity. There was yeah. a black guy that was a Christian. Ah. And uh, the thing that hurt me on that one was he was killed. 
Oh, mm. gosh. I remember. During that bomb burst? No, in another... Oh, I see. Uh, and uh, I cried all night. Is that right? Yeah, we're still out on patrol. He, they picked him up from for the helicopter. Now, um, you were never a case, huh? No, I was in the DMZ, but I never was. Okay, I'm just curious. I was in Contium. Okay. But it was the, the war was not as um, fluid then in, in, that, in that area when I was there. Then the, okay. the big one was way in 1968. Right, that was Tet Offensive. Yeah. So this is WNZN Radio, and we've been talking with Bob Fredericks. Very interesting life story, his testimony, how he came to Christ. How he was in Vietnam for two tours of duty, which mm -hmm. was 13 months each. Yep. He was wounded. Uh, everything that went on there, I mean, you know, it's like, people don't even think about it now. It's like ancient history, but how that impacted America and impacted so many lives. And now you come back, and what did you want to do when you got out of the service? I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then when I was getting my discharge physical, I met an FBI agent who was also getting a discharge physical. And I talked to him for at length because you have to wait in a doctor's office forever anyway to, mm -hmm. to see a doctor. And I, I, it piqued my interest. So I was uh, in, the, in the Philadelphia area at the time. So I went in and made application. And in short order, I, I got into the FBI. Well, you had a that? good background. I oh, mean, did he? Yeah. West Point and everything. When did I get How old were you when you joined the FBI? Okay. 30 years old. So you were stationed in Philadelphia? Well, I was I was already out of the FBI at the time. I mean, out of the uh, Marine Corps at the time. But you were in Philly. That was, that was your in office. Philly. Yeah, we were, I had a job there. And then you came to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. well, would you have a main job? I mean, specifically in the FBI. Um, I did surveillance for two and a half years, organized crime surveillance, where I got to know everybody by face. And then after that, I became a uh, what they call a case agent which means that uh, I started working cases. And I had I'd been in maybe now three or four months when Danny Green got blown up. So tell, tell the listeners who Danny Green is. Give them background information on what's going on in Cleveland at that time, Bob. Well, what was happening was, was uh, Danny Green, what, the, uh, the mafia leadership changed. John Scalish was the uh, boss of the family, uh, Way back when he was good forever, he actually got busted in uh, Appalachia back in 1957. So the mob here <clears> in Cleveland hadn't really done too much. But, yeah. Uh, but um, uh, except to collect money, because there was some money that had been invested in uh, Las Vegas. Was Cleveland a big crime town? It's always been a big crime town. I mean, this is where rum running was originated. Back. Is that right? Way back to, yeah. What was that, sugar? I mean, was that? Was sugar that, Ward, yeah, right. yeah. The Sugar Ward. Yeah. Okay. And was that the, divided the city? You had, what, Little Italy? You had Collinwood area? Is that how it was breaking down? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you were part of that. So how? what was your spiritual life like then, Bob? I mean, you're out of the Marine Corps. You're wounded. You've been wounded. You're readapted. You've got four children. You're in FBI. You're dealing with all these gangsters and criminals, I guess, what you're saying. How was your So Well, again, we had a couple of guys in the, in the bureau that were Christians. Is that right? Strong Christians? Yeah, strong Christians. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe you remember one of them, Dave Drab. I think he went to uh, Bay Presbyterian. I'm not sure. Yeah, several went to Bay Presbyterian. Yeah. I don't know him, but yeah. But we were in a pretty good church at the time. It was a friend of the family type. Okay. Yeah. 
So it, it, it tell us a little bit about the Cleveland environment at this time when you joined the FBI, because I had no idea that Cleveland was known as the bomb city. Well, things didn't get really, things didn't deteriorate in Cleveland until uh, James Licavoli became the boss of the family. All right. Of the Irish family. Yeah. Yeah. No, of the, uh, no, of the, of the mob. Of the Licavoli, mob. yeah. Okay. Danny Green was the Irishman, and he was known as the Irishman. And once Licavoli took over, uh, Green hooked up with a guy named John Nardi, and the two of them uh, had a sh thought they had a shot at taking over the mob here at the rackets in Cleveland. And so that's when things began to deteriorate because uh, Danny Green initiated basically a war. And this went back and forth, and a lot of people were getting killed on the, uh, on the mafia side, but not mafia guys. Where was this located? I mean, where was this headquartered? Was it certain areas? Water, he, he was up there on 150th and Waterloo. Oh, the Collinwood area. Yeah. And he grew up in the Collinwood area. Oh, okay. And because he was Irish, uh, the Italians in Collinwood High School picked on him. Oh. So he went into the Marine Corps, and when he got out of the Marine Corps, he said, uh, uh, okay, it's uh, retribution time. I'm going after these guys. And he would, he would borrow money from loan sharks, and then he would say to them, uh, Collect it if you think you can. Oh. I mean, he, he just uh, aggravated everybody. It just kind of turned things Did you know him? I, I've met him a few times. I didn't really know him, but okay. I met him. Because he's famous. They made the movie, Get mm -hmm. the Irishman. Yeah. You know, and right. so people, our listeners may know him, but yeah. that whole period of time in Cleveland is kind of, in a, you know, a lot of people don't realize we were national news. I know. You know, so, yeah. okay, so now you're getting familiar with the, the, the crime syndicate in Cleveland, what does that look like then? I mean, you're arresting these guys or they're turning? We weren't arresting them. They were blowing each other up, okay? Um, it's very difficult to solve an organized crime murder. Um, and when, when Danny Green was killed, there were some things that just meshed together that uh, uh, caused us to be able to solve that, that murder. Got it together. I mean, it's one thing to have informants and know who did what. It's another thing to prove it. All right? And so when, uh, when Ray Farido and Ronnie Caravia blew up green in the, uh, de at the dental office, the parking lot there, at, uh, there was a woman at the light in Lyndhurst there, and uh, she saw what happened, and it was unusual. What, what she saw was unusual. And that was one guy was sitting in the front seat, one guy was sitting in the back seat oh. at, at a telephone booth. Then this explosion goes up. Well, they immediately get on 271 North. The girl gets on 271 North, follows them, and then comes right up alongside and then, and, and then backs off. She's an artist. So she drew a sketch. I got a copy of this Whoa. sketch. Whoa, can you imagine? Wow. And her father was a policeman in Berea. So her father, she gives the sketch to her father. Her father calls up Andy Vanyo at Cleveland Intelligence at the time. And then Vanyo looks at this uh, sketch. He says, I think this is Ray Ferrito. Vanyo was really knowledgeable in organized crime. And, he, and, and Ferrito wasn't a mob guy, but uh, this was his opportunity to, to become a mob member. So he, he and Ronnie Carabia took on this. Uh, so that was, yeah. 
So then spiritually now you're going along and then what happens? I mean, you get bigger and bigger in the FBI organization. Me? Promotion, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then what happens? I mean, your life kind of oh, yeah, well, goes this way and that way. <laughs> what happens was, was uh, we solved that murder. Right. Okay, then we had back-to-back, -back, we had another one going on with Angelo Leonardo and that group, who, who after all these guys, <clears throat> the smoke cleared for the mob, and the only guy left was Angelo Leonardo. He had sort of been the acting boss of the family, so now he was the boss. Well, he's still the acting boss because the boss is still alive and he's in jail. And so he hooked up with the West Side gang. Okay. All right. Now the West Side gang were were ruthless guys. I mean, they were murderers. They were narcot. They weren't the narcotics. All right. And Carmen Zagari was the head of that group over there. On uh, you probably know him. <laughs> <laughs> on the on the on the West Side there at, at Lorraine and uh, I guess about West Ninety Third. Okay. Those guys were really big time distributors of marijuana. Okay. As a matter of fact. Carmen told me, he said, well, we used to cut our marijuana. He had a pet store. He cut, he cut his marijuana with uh, rabbit food. He says, and everybody in the hood loved it. So we used to call our marijuana the hops. Huh. <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> um, but he had a couple other guys, too, and that were the Grau brothers. And the Grau brothers, were uh, their background was Germans, and they were, they were just, they, they just enjoyed killing. Is that right? You know, no matter what it was, yeah. So they had a tiger by the tail with this one, Angelo did. So they, these guys all got indicted too, and Angelo got indicted with this, with this group. And, and that investigation was conducted by a guy named Dean, Dean Winslow, who did an excellent job on that. Uh, and, uh, and Donna Fitzsimmons was the prosecutor oh, yeah. on that. Mm -hmm. all right? That was her first case, basically. I mean, she ended up in the strike force, and they said, here, Donna, take this. And she had that case, and that, that lady, worked at least 16 hours a day. I don't know how she did it. But I mean, she just uh, studied that and just worked that thing. And finally, we got a, we got a conviction on all of the uh, subjects, which included Angelo Leonardo. And I was in a, a short time later, a couple, maybe a couple of months, I was in an organized crime meeting in, uh, I think it was either Detroit or Chicago. And I called my boss and I said that, uh, I said, you know, on my way back, I want to stop off and talk to Angelo, say hello to Angelo. Because I knew him from the past, I had mm -hmm. talked to him. And I did, and he was in the Springfield Medical Facility there, and he was really down. And I, we talked for about a half an hour, gave him my card, said, Angelo, if you ever need any help, uh, give me a call. And he called a week later. And so from there, uh, Judge Manos was his judge. Manos was agreeable to anything we wanted to do. And so we pulled him out of jail, debriefed him. And then, th this is where my problems started with uh -huh. it, was uh, I, I went to uh, the strike force. And the strike force says, well, what can he, after pr making this presentation, what Angelo could do all over the country? Because he knew every boss in, in, in the country. And, and I said, he can't do anything, Steve, in uh, Cleveland. I said, everybody's in jail or dead. He says, well, I don't want him. So I stood over that for about a week, and then I said to Jerry Persona handled, handled him. He was the handler for, for Leonardo. I said, Jerry, go see Rudy Giuliani in New York, see if he wants him. And so Jerry went to New York, talked to Rudy, who was head Southern District of Ohio at the time. He was the United States Attorney, Southern District. And after Jerry made his presentation, uh, Rudy says, hey, I want him. 
It's a done deal. And then Jerry says something like, well, who do you answer up to? He said, it's a done deal. Okay, and that was He's going to turn in all these gangsters. Right. Well, I had, what happened was I had ended up backdooring my own strike force. Backdoor means? I, I circumvented them after they told me they didn't want them. Has that got you in trouble? Oh, yeah, that's where my troubles started. So how did they go from there, your troubles? Well, my troubles got worse when we had to have a, a conference down in the Washington, D.C., because my boss didn't get along with the strike force boss. And we got down there, and I'm not going to use the words that were used, but we had a big meeting at the Justice Department there. I didn't want to go. My boss, Joe Griffin, took me in. He said, you're going with me. And so when the meeting started, it was, it was, it was one of these things where you got a problem in Cleveland. And uh, my boss jumped up and said, no, we don't have a problem in Cleveland. You have a problem in Cleveland. And it's, and I'm not going to say, he just, and it's that guy right there who he pointed to the Cleveland strike force. So that, that, you know, heated this thing up even more. So how did the, what, what, what eventuated, what happened? You got more in trouble? Yeah, I got more in trouble from that. But at the same time, my, my informant at this time was Jackie Presser. I was the third contact agent. So, I mean, I had one of the, we had one of the best informant programs in the country. We had solved a couple of, a, a series of gangland murders. I mean, in my, I became a legend in my own mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it was like pride was getting. Oh, yeah, it was big time. I mean, we had an inspection at one point there. I was going on a vacation, and I was supposed to come back for the inspection, and, and the inspector said, no need. I, you don't need to come back. I've seen everything here. Oh. So, so you, were you the head of the FBI? In no, no, I was only organized crime supervisor. Supervisor, yeah. okay. So then, then did you get tried or, or well, prosecuted? Well, what happened was um, uh, I was told there was an investigation going on in regards to Jackie Presser. I was told that and when that investigation ended, they were just going to decline prosecution, deep six, mm -hmm. and put it, in a, put it in a safe somewhere. But that didn't happen. They came back and told me that he was going to be indicted. I said, you guys told me, you know, what was going to happen here. So I decided, I took it upon myself because I had been contacting agents right. for Jackie for five years. I decided that I was going to try and lie my way through this and say that the case was a ghost employees and that I they'd been authorized to put these ghost employees on the table. Okay. Because I had done that myself a couple yeah. times anyway. All right, so then, then uh, these guys didn't believe that was true, so justice started investigating me. And as a result of that, uh, I was—I admitted that I had lied. I ended up getting indicted. But they had—but over because of a technicality, the case against me was dismissed. Oh, nice. Now you met Chuck Colson in that time, did you not? Oh yeah. You know, it's—it's it's what happened was after I got indicted, I had spent my entire life working on my reputation. It's one of my idols. Okay. My reputation. My job was one of my idols. So, at any rate. Uh, uh, and then the, the, and in one day you see your you see your face a picture of you on every newspaper front page from LA Times to the New York Times and everything mm -hmm. in between whoa uh, including I mean I even made the Wall Street Journal I mean <laughs> so I mean, and now when was that what what was the the date that was it was back in the um, about 1985. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll get that date. Okay. Um, so did, at this time spiritually, so were you... I, I was, yeah, well, that was another story. My uh -huh. spiritual life had 
you know, kind of gone waned. Okay. Because mm -hmm. my all of I was having I was having great success at work and less success at home. Okay. All right, and that's a, another story, but uh, uh, it was really it got my attention when I went down to, to my one of my buddies from the Naval Academy knew Chuck Colson. He says Colson wants to meet you when you come down here. So <laughs> I went and met him because he had gone to jail too for yeah, year, right. Remember, I remember. Yeah. Watergate. And he said, well, what'd you get yourself into? I said, this isn't funny. He was kind of laughing at me. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you something here. He says, um, uh, when everything is gone, like it's gone, your whole reputation is everything is gone, you're now a free person. Oh, interesting. Okay. He said, you, you, you no longer are protecting yourself. You're no longer looking over your back about who might discover who I really am. Because you can disguise that. If you're, if you're not walking with the Lord, you can disguise a spiritual life and have a great career life at the same time. Yeah, right. And then you can, you know, you, you can glibly say, oh yeah, I, I give it all to God. I give it all to, you know, one sure. of those kind of things. And that's what really what had happened at that point. Was that a turning point for you, Bob? It really was. At that particular point, it was a turning point for me because uh, it was a short time after that, I just lost everything. I lost my job. I lost everything. You were in jail. And I, hadn't, I wasn't oh, in jail okay. yet. I had just lost everything, and uh, um, it 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 really made got my attention from the point of view of how how many gods I really had. Yeah, right. False right. gods that I had. Now, when did you find the Bible? You, you mentioned where were you? You looking at that scripture verse? Were you in jail at the oh, time? Oh yeah, you mean Psalm 142? Yes, yes, yes. Um, a, a year later, they indicted uh, Jackie Presser. Died in between there. A year and he was a teamster. He was kind an of international president of okay. teamsters. There was a couple others that were worked in, in local. Uh, I think it was 90, 91, I, Local here in um, Cleveland, and that was Tony Hughes and Alan Friedman. So they indicted them, and they took them to they took them to trial. So they decided, and I couldn't give anything in this. They they, they decided to subpoena me to testify. And um, uh, I knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to resurrect my testimony because it had been dismissed on a technicality in the past. Okay. And uh, I went through a, an awful anguishing time there with my wife. And she just stuck by me the whole time in this. Mm. And uh, finally I decided I'm not going to testify in this matter because this is only going to lead to other stuff. Right. And I, it was it was like, I felt like that's what the Lord wanted me to do. So you were right. thinking more about God at this time. I was time. thinking more about God because yeah. we I would lay in bed, you know, yeah. put myself in jail for the rest of my life. And I'd say to my wife at night, she, these things become monsters at night. Sure. Yeah. You know, say some scripture. And she would start reeling off psalms. Is that and right? And then I'd fall back to sleep. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. And... Uh, Finally, I decided I was going to not testify, take the fifth. Well, I got on the stand, and I took the fifth. And as soon as I did that, when I got off because I was going to jail, I felt a sense of peace. Hmm. And I, I think one of the lessons I learned is you, you, you may uh, know what God wants you to do, but he may take you all the way to the point where you make the decision before he gives you the peace oh, okay. that he promises you. Uh, because he wants he wants you to learn 
you know what faith is. Yes. Um, and 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 I had I had peace, and then I ended up in jail for three and a half weeks, because then the, the, you you I was in civil I was in jail for civil contempt. Okay. And, which uh, is what? Which is basically you stay in jail as long as the trial goes on until it's over. Uh, there were okay. some rumors that I was going to end up with criminal contempt after this too. I mean, okay. those guys are really mad at me. Uh, at any rate. Um, while I was in jail there, it was a night I just kind of broke down, and uh, I was in, finally ended up transferred to Strongsville. And uh, when I got there, uh, I knew all those guys in Strongsville, so they knew who I was. At any rate, um, I had one night I just woke up, and I just started crying, and I grabbed my Bible, and I went over to the bars, because there was lights on in the, the center uh -huh. there, was right. these pods around sure. the center. And I started reading, and I and I just opened it to Psalm 142, and it was David. It's, David's got about 150 of his troops, and they're exile. Uh, they're actually fleeing uh, Saul, yeah, yeah, right, and Saul. they ended up in a cave. I don't know remember the name. In Gideon, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. At any rate, he's grousing. He, David's really grousing about his problems. And then at the very end of the Psalm, the seventh verse says, "Bring my soul out of prison." Now this is a um, um, new internet. Um, New International Version, not a New International Version, but the, the version I had, it said, soul, soul, bring my soul out of prison. Mm. So I went uh, back and forth with this, and finally, I started crying, and then finally, God says, you know what the problem is? He, he said, you see those bars right in front of you? Those are not the real bars. The real bars are the ones you have around your soul. Mm. Can't you just trust me? And I really just kind of wow, wow, started wow. crying. I cried probably for... At least a half an hour wow. or so, and then I just I sensed peace. After was that the turning point in your life? Yeah, I think it was. I, it was the idea that um, most of my uh, most of my Christian life, I had been studying the Bible, but not doing it. Mm -hmm. And you can get uh, you can get pretty heady handling it that way. Yes, right. And so, uh, not that I wasn't doing it. I, I mean, I picked and choose what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, that was the first time that uh, I, I really realized that uh, I read something by uh, uh, George MacDonald said something to the effect that, look, uh, men would rather have knowledge than they would to, to obey. Mm. But you only learn if you obey. That's good. Yeah. yeah. And so how long were you in prison uh, studying the Bible then? Three and a half weeks or longer? Just three and a half weeks. I didn't study the Bible in prison. Actually, I read the uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh, <laughs> right? Yeah, but I, you know, I did have quiet times. But it, 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 it became very meaningful after that. Now your family then, how did that restore your family? How did that go about? Well, it did. I was restored. I, I, one of the things that was really helpful to me was the fact that during this whole period of time, uh, I always had support from the guys on the street, the guys in Cleveland. All right, they had come down when I got a rain. They. They, they rented a bus and came down to the Washington, D.C., and there was about 60 of my buddies there that were there. And the director from the I, FBI office. From the FBI office in uh -huh. Cleveland. And yeah. the director was really upset over all that, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you talked about, you know, one of the themes uh, that we're talking about at the retreat you're speaking at next week is forgiveness. So you had a lot of anger that built up. Uh, from this whole situation, and I, I'm t if you could just remind us 
why you had that anger because um, you made the decision to lie, right? And that's what happened. So where did the anger come in against well, your supervisor? Well, I didn't realize it. Uh, here's what here's what happens. Is yeah, it's resentment. Okay. okay. And resentment is kind of a, a devious, as a, a insidious type sin. Right. Because what happens is, as you look at the look at the person that sinned against you, or at least you perceive yeah. sinned against you, and you point fingers at them, and not yourself. But while you're doing that, you become somewhat possessed with uh, you get focused on that, and then it, it just it builds up and builds up. Whoa. And uh, I was okay. At first, but what was happening was was this was a great experience that I went through, and when I got out of jail and, and then uh, talking about it and so forth. But what happens if you're not careful is is I became more enamored with the experience than I did with the Lord of the experience. Okay. So the the bitterness was still there. Okay. So I got hooked up with a large insurance company. I was all of a sudden I was making a ton of money. Hmm. And it was in this time that this bitterness was still there. And it was during that period of time that I just plain snapped because I just felt like uh, I had really been wronged. What do you mean snap? I, I what snapped happened? from the point of view of shaking my fist at God. Can't you come up with a better storm than this? I stepped out on my wife and I, I was drinking and I just kind of, everything just... Turned on. Well, while you were at this insurance agency, yeah. you were the head of security? Or no, what? I wasn't the head of security. I yeah. just did all of their investigations. Okay. But I was making pretty good money doing this. So then how do you go that forgiveness route? Well, the problem was, was while, while I was going through this, uh, I never felt right about being separated from Cheryl. Uh -huh. I never felt right. All right. You mean when you were in jail or no? After what? I was out and I'd made a lot of money, I was still uh -huh. making a lot of money. But, right, right. But you're, I wasn't happy. Sure. Okay. Okay. I was miserable. Right. I had my own apartments. Uh, I did drink quite a bit. I didn't see that. I I had a fling. I didn't see this woman too much, but it was enough to. It was terrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the more you you know you hang on to that, the more guilty you get. So you weren't living at home when you were doing these investigations for the insurance company. Uh, not at some point in time, I wasn't. No. Okay. So yeah. what, what did it bring? What happened then, Bob? How did that? We've got all, just maybe <coughs> ten more minutes. Okay. Yeah, ten minutes. Uh -huh. how, how does that come to forgiveness, restoration? Then tell. Well, what what happened? There was two things that happened to me uh, during this period of time. I can remember one. Maybe I won't forget one of the other. But uh, I'm coming back from doing an investigation in Geneva. It's very dark, it's winter, it's snowing, and it looks like we're in space because there's no lights. Yeah. So I'm turned on the radio, and, and this, this guy's telling his woes to this lady on the, on the radio. This lady by the name of Dr. Laura, I'd never heard oh, of yeah. her. Oh, yeah, okay. And he's saying, look, I'm separated from my wife. I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to get in a relationship with my kids. My kids are rejecting me. And she says, uh, and finally, he said, did she asked the question, do you have a girlfriend? Yes. And then finally, she still, Dr. Lohr says to the guy, what are you, brain dead? <laughs> On the radio there, and I, that really hit home. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Because what this guy was telling Laura, he was trying to justify his situation, oh, okay. trying to get back with his kids, was exactly what I was trying to do. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And basically, Dr. Lohr was speaking to me. He said, what are you, brain dead? Interesting, yeah. Yeah. So that got my attention. Um, a friend of mine, a Western artist by the name of Jim Seward. I know Jim. You know Jim? Mm -hmm. He's a Western artist. I went over to see him and I was 
I was trying to, I'm trying to defend myself. He gave me a couple of his silk screens, a buck and a doe, and two, two, two silk screens. Yeah. An artist, a Western artist. And I, 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 and he, he says, no, you, you got to get this right. That's all he would say to me. I took them and I, I brought them back to my apartment. And I was drinking that night. And when I woke up the next morning, I looked at these things. It's like, holy smoke, it's a buck who is taking care of his wife, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. They're coming out of a tree line and he's looking all over to make sure that she can come. The next thing, then the other one, she's drinking and he's watching to make sure that, you know, there's no you know, things going to happen to her while... And, and I mean, these kind of things just started happening to me, and it crushed me. And then finally, I just said, "Lord, I, I got to give up." I. That was it. That was it. Yeah. Now, since then, of course. And that required me to go back to Cheryl and to have all kinds of conditions, and that was forgiveness. Forgive. That was the big issue. So you know, the scripture talks about warns against bitterness, right? Yeah. You had resentment, but it was similar to that, right? And Paul says that bitterness is like a root. The longer it is allowed to grow, the more difficult it is to get rid of. Hebrews 12.15 states that the root of bitterness left to grow will bring defilement to many. Right, and that's the defilement yes. to many. And that's the verse that took. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then she, Cheryl, your wife, accepted you back? Right. Now, all this time, and I didn't know it, but all this time... Uh, I guess you were in the group too. It was Fred Corey's group. Uh -huh. They had a group that was praying for me. Right. So. I remember. The and, first and when thing, was this? I mean, I'm trying to. 95. No, follow 90, all the. It was around 95. Yeah, right, right, 1995. Yeah. Maybe 94. And, and, and this is when you were at, I guess, a breaking point, right? 1995. Well, this was, yeah, this was my next breaking point. Okay. This one was one of forgiveness, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cheryl said, okay, but I want you to come to my group. Right. I, I said, oh, you know, I'm going to the prayer group that's been praying for me. So <laughs> I, I get to the group. I think it was outside. Yeah, We're right. sitting around on the grass. And Cheryl announces, this is your answer to, my, to our prayers. And I'm just sitting there. And then either Fred or John, somebody says, well, stand up. <laughs> and I just, didn't, I, I just didn't bring myself to say anything. But I stood up and everybody clapped for me. And I'm thinking, oh, man. All right, this was uh, yeah. This was what real forgiveness was, and I mean, yeah. I, I I had nothing to hang my hat on, wow. except for the fact, will you forgive me? Yeah. And then the same thing happened with Cheryl's parents. They came to the home, and I'm thinking, oh, I gotta, I gotta go through this again. And I walked in the house, and I and I met Cheryl's father, and I started in, you know, I want you to forgive me. And then he grabbed me and hugged me and said, uh, you have a nice home here. Just Whoa. like that. Just sort of like a prodigal Forgiveness, thing. Forgiveness, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, I know after that, God put on your heart to open your home mm -hmm. for Bible study groups and then prison. We just have a couple minutes left, but maybe you can tell this side of the story, Bob. I mean, what you've come through is just incredible yeah, for the past half a yeah, century. Yeah. Maybe tell us now. Well, we, we lived in a big home. We had a, home, a fairly good-sized home because I had bought. I told Cheryl once, one time when I was way back when, you know, in the Marine Corps, someday I'll buy you a big house. Which I did. I overextended myself, but I bought a big house. Uh -huh. um, at any rate, it's <laughs> on those. At any rate, um, uh, we decided that maybe this house should be more than just for us. Uh -huh. and, and one thing we did was we decided because Cheryl had been had been uh, really uh, take, taken care of in this Bible study, 
that it was uh, our turn to maybe we should do something. Mm -hmm. And that's when I think we invited you, John, mm -hmm. and we thought that might be the way to go. And uh, you came, it's about 9-11, I think, is when I we started so. that. Yeah. And uh, we started having people coming in there. When you were there, I mean, we had up to upwards of 30, 30 people plus coming in there, yeah, and coming and going. And uh, it just was a... It was a great time. Yeah. And one of the doctors got saved through John, Bob Scarcella. He got saved. That was great. Yeah. So, you know, during this whole thing with the last few minutes, I mean, if you could summarize for the listeners... I guess your top three or so life lessons throughout this whole thing. What what would it be with a Christian focus? You know what what's important in life? Um, yeah, what's important in life? <laughs> uh, I think the thing that, that I learned, and it's it's been a it's I'm still learning. That's the the one thing I learned is is you're not just saved, you know, and say, and God, you're, we're not deists, and God doesn't say to us, okay. Uh, you're saved. Uh, good luck. Have a good life. Yeah, Do right. your best, and uh, we'll see you in heaven. Yeah. Okay. And all of Paul's letters, which I think are, if anything in the Bible's misunderstood, his letters are misunderstood. Mm -hmm. It's because he talks about the walk, the walk, the walk. Therefore, as you have received mm -hmm. him, so walk ye in him. Mm -hmm. So it's over and over and over again. And just this morning in Colossians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. It, it finally concludes in 3. It's the walk. And that's the that's the sanctification. That's can you trust me in all of these things because God is grooming us, yeah. I think, to be co-inheritors of the universe mm -hmm. with his son. Right. And then, yeah. Now what about the prison ministry? How would that open up? Well, that opened up because uh, I got to know a guy named uh, Frank Scalish. Interestingly enough, Frank Scalish was the uh, nephew of John Scalish, yeah, the boss. Yeah. The big game. Right. Big, yeah. big game. Yeah. And he got saved. Wow. Okay? Yeah. And uh, I don't know how we met. He probably remembers. I don't know how we met. But uh, he was looking for a job, and he finally found a job with Mike Swagger in prison ministry. That's right. Like, that's how we connected that's to Mike Swagger. Okay, okay, now I got it. Yeah. And Mike Swagger, uh, when he got out of jail, he did 17 and a half years. When he got out of jail, he went to uh, Gospel House. I think that's where you took Bob. It wasn't sure, to get sure. baptized. Mm -hmm. He went to the gospel house, and from there, after he had been mentored quite a yeah. bit, he went into his own ministry, which is prison, uh, true, true freedom ministries. Yes. And so that's how I got involved with those guys. It was kind of funny. I remember one meeting we were sitting at. I'm sitting next to a hell's angel that got saved. Yeah. Okay, Gary Coley's running this thing. He's a prison chaplain. He's the prison chaplain. Yeah, Gary was did his time too. He did about seven and a half years. He said I kept doing intermittently. I never learned. <laughs> he was a funny guy. Yeah, at any rate, he he said this is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. He says, he says, look at these two guys over here. One was in the FBI. One's a Hell's Angel. They're both saved, and guess what? They've both been in prison. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's. And one of the things that I learned, and I was for myself too, when, when working with prisoners, is they're not you're not going to get anywhere with those guys until they say take responsibility for what they did. Right, right. I got to right. be responsible yeah. for what I did. Yeah. And you've seen guys in prison that you knew come to come to the Lord, come yeah. to accept Jesus. Yeah. yeah. One of them was a lieutenant in the mob, was Tommy Sonito. I went to see Sonito just because I was trying to turn him. I was, I was like I said. Turn I him a, means you want a, him to confess cooperate to Cooperate and yeah. use him somewhere. Uh, while I was there, we, we talked a little bit about Christ. I happened to have it. I don't know why I had it. 
I had a, a copy of uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity with me. And I gave that book to him. And he called me up maybe two or three weeks later, and he said, Chuck, Chuck Colson was in, my, he was in Marion. He said, Chuck, not, not Milan, I mean, not Marion, Milan, which is right over the border there mm -hmm. in Michigan. Uh, he said, Chuck Colson was here, and I went to his retreat for the weekend. He said, is he telling the truth? Oh. Okay, and I said, yes. And he said, I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> and he got saved. That yeah, that's he, great. He got saved. And then, did he die in prison? He died in prison. But I remember talking to another one of his friends at one time. I, I knew, I, I kept in touch with some of these guys in prison that I put in jail. <laughs> at any rate, uh, I said, how's Tommy doing? He says, oh, he's driving us nuts. He said, all he does is talk about Jesus. Is that right? Yeah. He really does. He says, that. but there's one thing that I will say. When the other, when some of the guys in the mob guys are here with him, when they get themselves in trouble at you know home life and stuff, they go to town. Wow. Yeah. It's changed, transformed life. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you very much. We just have a minute or two. That was a good question, David. How? What, what's the yeah. takeaway from this this whole yeah. experience? But um, you know, maybe we'll have you on again, Bob, down the road, and uh, people are really interested in your your story and. Forgiveness, and then your ministry, and reaching out to men today, especially in prison. Yeah, and uh, God, you know, you, you, God you bless know, you. It, I guess a closing comment again: How do you forgive when you when you see that it's becoming a root? Right? I mean, how, how do you how do you t talk to the listeners about the the key to that? I, I just think you. I, I almost think that you have to come to your wit's end because you hang on and hang on and hang on. I mean, I think probably if you if you are a Christian and you're walking with the Lord, yeah, it's 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 much easier. easier. It's yes, much it is. Easier. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And one of the things that's a reminder is, God never sees me in my sinful state. He sees me what I can be. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... and that's the way I have to look at other people. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I heard one time somebody say, and we we chalk these guys off atheists. He says. Don't judge a man who doesn't believe in God until you find out who this God is he doesn't believe exactly in. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. That's great. Yeah. That was with the Pharisees. All they could see was a sinner, but Jesus would see a soul that was in need right. of salvation. Yeah, right. He saw them all together. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Bob. Thanks, yes, David. Thanks, Bob. And thank for everybody listening in. This is WNZN Radio coming to you from Lorain, Ohio. Next week, maybe we have a special guest actually from the other side of the world. Yes. A very interesting yeah. guest. Uh, Lord willing, but uh, have a blessed weekend, and uh, thank you, thank you once again, Bob Fredericks, for coming thank in this you. morning. God bless you. Take guys. care, everybody. Have a good weekend. Bye. -bye.